This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. His name is Cortland Cox, one of the early members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. In the 1960s, violence was so pervasive, both from the non-police community and the police community. Maybe you have three or four incidents a day here during this time. You'd have 40 during that time. Coming up in this episode of Colors. The Biden administration wants to reunite migrant families that were separated at the U.S.-Mexico border. But it may be easier said than done. Not just because finding the the parents, but sometimes uh, the parents will not want to reunite because of fear that uh, they may end up, you know, both of them back in in Guatemala, Honduras or, or, or whatever country. But with a new president that seems to be sympathetic to their concerns, many Latinos appear to have new hope. It's a complete shift, a completely different approach and understanding that migrants in immigrants in the United States are important for the development of the country. Alfredo Corchado of the Dallas Morning News and Guadalupe Correa Cabrera of George Mason University join us to discuss. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. And I'm white. I'm J.J. Green. And I'm black. And this is Colors. Well, Chris, this is one of those shows that we've been waiting for for a while. It's long time coming, but I'm so happy it, it's finally here. We have two great folks here to talk to us about immigration, to talk to us about Latin America, to talk to us about American history, to talk to us about the current situation in the U.S. as it relates to its relationship with Latin America. Uh, first is uh, Guadalupe Correa Cabrera. She is an associate professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. Guadalupe, welcome. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Very glad to be here. Okay. Alfredo Corchado Jimenez is an award-winning Mexican-American journalist and author who's covered Mexico for a long time and currently is the Mexico City Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News. Alfredo, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, JJ. First thing I'd like to do is to get your thoughts both about President Biden versus President Trump. Guadalupe, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, I mean, some days after um, the inauguration, even the first day of the inauguration, we uh, were able to see that there was a completely different uh, discourse, different, completely, completely different rhetoric that um, that that really 
could help us to differentiate uh, from the past administration. Uh, the first day of his president, in his, of his presidency, uh, President Biden signed a number of executive orders and had a totally different approach to undocumented immigration. And has expressed his his attempt to so at least in the rhetoric there is a completely different it's a complete shift a completely different approach and an understanding that migrants in immigrants in the United States are important for the development of the country okay. and need to be treated with respect Alfredo your views on a president Trump versus a now president Biden well i would just pick it back when, from what uh, Guadalupe said i mean it's 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 a complete different language uh, you're not hearing the words invasion or criminals. Uh, there's no talk about walls. I mean, if anything, there's talk about, you know, not adding more wall. And for someone who lives and, and was raised on the border, I mean, I'm currently in El Paso, Texas. It is refreshing. I mean, it is a, a sense of, you know, you're, you're a feeling of being welcome, a feeling, uh, a feeling of being human again and not uh, being labeled as, as the invader. I mean, you know, people invading the Southwest, which uh, was for generations. I mean, it, it belonged to Mexico, but it's, it's this region. I mean, this, this letter uh, corner of the world, right, where, where these two countries come together, where these worlds come together, and it can either be a place of division or a place of harmony a place of building bridges or a place of, of building walls. So since January the 20th, I mean, there has been a, a different feeling, but also a sense of, you know, what's to come in, in the post-Trump uh, era. I mean, how do we get back to a normal life? And I, I think it's, it's a little too early to predict when that will happen. If, if I could ask a question, uh, Alfredo, um, so President Tr Donald Trump, candidate Trump, began his campaign uh, talking about uh, Mexico sending their worst people across the border and, and, you know, rapists and robbers and all that stuff. He said, obviously, that rang a chord with an awful lot of Americans because that's how he kicked off his campaign and he ended up winning. Why do you think that that hit such a chord in America? Because I think it, it uh, spoke to the you know, the inherent racism that's, that's there in, in many Americans, not all Americans. Obviously, my father wouldn't have picked this country to, to come to if, if he believed that. But I think there's a segment of the population that, uh, you know, that's fearful of the unknown, that, that fears uh, people coming from the South or, or other parts of the world. Uh, I mean, I came as a six-year-old, kid from from Mexico, not wanting to come to the United States. I mean, I, I was happy in Mexico. I thought I had the best life. You know, my father would send money from remittances uh, weekly, if not twice a month. And, and we lived great. Uh, so coming here uh, and seeing that and living that, especially uh, seeing it firsthand on August 3rd, 2019, when they when the white gunmen from North Texas came to El Paso, came to the border to kill, in his words, Mexicans, because he wanted to, to stop the Hispanic invasion of Texas. 
uh, I mean, I think that was probably the most awful, tragic moment that I feel uh, I ever lived as, as a human being and as a reporter who's covered these two countries for over 25 years. I mean, that was the moment that I looked around and I thought, you know, uh, I know it's a podcast, uh, but I thought, what the f- America, you know, how do we fit in? And, and, and what about the, the sweat that people like my father left in the fields of California and the West Texas to try to make sure people had enough food, enough wine to drink? I mean, it's, it's the two faces of America that I think as immigrants, as the others, we constantly try to, to find a way of belonging, try to find a way of fitting in. The reason I ask that is because I wonder how different this experience is uh, compared to the plight of immigrants forever who've been coming to the United States, because there were times that there was prejudice against Germans, Poles, Italians, Swedes, uh, pretty much you name it. If you weren't from England, more or less, I was against the Irish, too. So um, there's always been at the beginning of immigration, there's always been some hostility toward the new people in town. And I wonder if this is any different than the uh, American story that goes back, you know, a couple of hundred years from from when immigrants started to come into the United States. There was there were people that felt threatened. Do you think this is different? Can, can I say something here? Sure. Can I opine and then throw it to our guest? You know, the question to me is, who is they? Because all of us here are immigrants, and it's always been that way. So the question that I wonder about is, who who are they that always decides to hate on the other people or the new people? Who Who is it that started this business, oh, we can hate these people because they're not like us? I mean, that's the, that's the issue to me is, who is they? I think that's a good point. I mean, that that right. I, I, it's sort of like whoever is in the country now, when a vast number of new people come to the country, suddenly those people who are coming here are a threat to the rest of us. I don't feel that way. You don't feel that way. And I know that Alfredo and Guadalupe don't feel that way. But there are a certain number of people who feel that way now who would have always felt that way. And um, that unfortunately, that's part of the sad history of this country. Or maybe it's the same in other countries, but I've only lived in this one. Well, I mean, I find it that it's oftentimes a question of, of white versus black, white versus brown, uh, white versus other colors. Um, it's I mean, that's that's been my experience. And I think that's why. Uh, the border has always been so so special to so many people, and and I think it's different from from uh, when you compare it to other countries, you know, it, whether Europe or Eastern Europe, because Mexico will always be here. I mean, it's a two thousand mile border. It it sort of shadows the United States. The the uh, tension between both countries has been there. I mean, for more than a hundred years. I mean, this this whole area again, you know, once was part of Mexico, and I think. Americans, in this case, you know, Texans never really forget that. I mean, that always, that cloud always hangs. Uh, Will, you know, will Mexicans take back the Southwest? Are are too many of them coming? Um, It's, it's the, um, you know, it's, it's what we know historically. America wants it both ways. I mean, America wants people to come in, do the cheap labor, do the work, do the hard work that, uh, Americans won't do, 
But when there are too many or when there's an, a, an economic situation, you know, a bad situation in the United States, it's time to kick him out, time to yeah. boot him out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Guadalupe, um, you have written about this on numerous occasions and you and I over the last year or so have talked about this almost at least once or twice a month. You know, this very problem. Right. Exactly. Um, something that we haven't mentioned is the political utilization of these differences to attract votes, dividing and conquering. And as Phil said, something that is very important. I lived at the border for eight years. I am. I always return. It's it's a land that I dear. It's a land that I call my home. Still, I still have an apartment there, just by by the Rio Grande River, and I never felt that I didn't belong because, as Alfredo said, it was Mexico. Texas was Mexico, and 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 there were no differences. And. Mexicans have been able to enter the United States to work. Of course, they're a source of cheap labor um, and they have advanced a lot. Once uh, once the immigration restrictions were put into place, um, Mexicans could not go back and forth as they used to go back and forth. So they started to stay and started to gain more spaces in the uh, in the U.S. society. So there is, on the one hand, there's always this, this, uh, I mean, this fear of the new people of the, I mean, this, this, this division plus the cultural aspects of the, of the U.S. society, its foundations. But also there is, there is, there, there are these two other things. Uh, the, the real, I mean, the politicians have realized that utilizing these divisions or making use of them, us versus them, uh, helps them to, to, to be successful in elections. And on the, I mean, and also they can use this. They are advancing. They are getting more positions. They are becoming more successful. And that, I mean, the utilization of that perception of fear, it's what causes more problems. And I think that the political utilization of that perception of fear is what has has caused so much, so many divisions and even people thinking that they have to exterminate those who don't belong to the land or who are wanting to to uh, to steal their jobs or who will bring drugs and will kill will kill your kids it's 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 a, it's a pity that it's it's about politics what is causing so many divisions well and J- and jj you your opening question about what is the difference really can be summed up in this <laughs> The bust that President Biden chose to have on the desk behind him, behind yes. the resolute desk, has a bust of Cesar Chavez, Chavez. on it. Yes. So I think that was that was not accidental. I no. think that was sending a message. You know, that 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 bus was was a, a real turning point. I mean, I remember watching the the inauguration and my, my parents were, you know, safe distance, COVID, COVID guidelines. But when they saw that bus, they just cheered. And, and they both started crying because they knew at that moment there was a, a change. I mean, my mom and my father were members of the United Farm Workers Union. I mean, they, they, they were there with Cesar Chavez. And so for them, that moment was so symbolic. It was, as, as my mom said, it's like the dark, dark skies have opened up. Yeah, it, it certainly was the same. And I can recall if you will permit me to say this, um, something similar when Barack Obama was elected, being an African-American man, the identity of the, the identity of the recognition of what just <laughs> happened or what might have just happened, you know, was very similar to what you described. But I have a question for the two of you that um, 
I'd like to ask uh, specifically, um, starting, I guess, with you, Alfredo, on this, because you wrote about this with your coworker, Diane, Diane uh, Solis, for the Dallas Morning News, and you said reconstruction of the immigration system for a nation whose origin story is all about immigration will be a difficult process. I'm interested in what you meant by that, and if it's what I think it is, I'd like to hear from you as well, uh, Guadalupe, about the the difficult road ahead, specifically when you look at some of the elements we're facing, like those 500-plus children who were separated from their parents. I mean, I think the genie is out of the bottle, and I think putting uh, genie back in the bottle will, will be very difficult. Just the, the, the word, you know, immigration reform, or when you hear, you know, Biden, uh, it will be uh, much more welcoming. The, the administration will be much more welcoming to immigrants. It, uh, I mean, it rings true in places like El Paso and along the border, because I, I think people in general are welcoming. I mean, they don't forget their own story that this is, you know, this is the, the story of America. You, you welcome people in. But I think the fear is that, uh, you know, what will it do? And, you know, will it continue to attract militia groups? I mean, we're already here on the border, you know, wait for the militias. They're coming out, you know, uh, it, it, at least here on the border. It, it's a, it's a, it's going to be an a, uh, early spring. I mean, the sun's coming out, which means we're going to see much, uh, you know, more families, more immigrants coming in. You have a pandemic all over the world. The economies are crushed. But there's also that fear that, you know, what President Trump started will not end anytime soon. And, and there are difficult days ahead. Yeah, I, I don't, uh, Alfredo, I don't share your optimism um, about the, the entire uh, reformation. Chris, uh, Chris, but when you, look, when you're an immigrant, you have nothing to do but be optimistic. No, no, I, I, no, <laughs> I understand that. But the reason I say that is because Republicans have tried to do it with uh, with John McCain um, and and under the Bush administration. Democrats have tried to do it. And, you you know, you hit on the real key is that there is an interest for big business to have people come across the border legally or illegally, do a lot of really hard work for very little money and then go home or don't go home. But, but the, it's the people that are making money. If you really, really wanted to stop illegal immigration or undocumented immigration, you would make it easier for people to get documented. And then you would find the employers who do not check for the documents, but nobody will ever do that because there's too much money involved. So unfortunately I'm, I'm generally a very optimistic person on this. I, I've been down this road for the last, well, you have more than I have, but I've been following this for the last 20 years and it doesn't seem to ever change. No, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, there is a sense of, of, a, of, of a welcoming attitude, but I don't think achieving immigration reform, especially comp- comprehensive immigration or, or maybe any kind of reform, it, it will be anything but easy. Absolutely. It's going to be difficult. And, and one, when I think uh, Chris is, is right mentioning the economic forces behind this. And this is why comprehensive immigration reform has not passed. And, and uh, you know, the system is, 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 is the way it is because it favors those, the, the big capital. And plus, we have another, another aspect that goes against um, all attempts to, to change the system again in favor of, of a society that is more inclusive, more diverse, and, and that accepts and, 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 and it's, uh, you know, 
uh, that recognizes equal pay for equal work of those who are not uh, U.S. nationals. Um, there's another important thing here, the divisions that were caused because of a very divisive uh, rhetoric because of like a discourse um, you know, initiated by the person at the White House. Many people right now have the sentiment that the migrants are others, that 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 immigrants are are people that 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 are dangerous, and there is a very very big fragmentation, polarization in the American society. So all attempts to to try uh, to pass these laws to reform the system, the system the system is difficult to reform because they, it has to go through some institutional channels, and it's not going to happen tomorrow. The pandemic adds to these problems. But people, I mean, people who really reject undocumented immigrants that have been uh, fed by this, this negative rhetoric of many politicians in the country, uh, this is going to also uh, become a source that would go against what the system has has planned and, and in a very successful way uh, made people invisible so you can really um, take advantage of cheap labor over and over again. And the possibility that people go to the streets and protest against uh, pro-immigrant uh, legislation or, or, or going back to what we had before, um, before the initiation of the Trump administration, it will be very, very difficult. And I think there will be a lot of people in the United States, unfortunately, that right now believe that immigrants are, are dangerous for, for the U.S. society. I'm also very negative, but I think that changing the rhetoric, changing the message, uh, it, it doesn't, things don't, will not change from, I mean, tomorrow, but I believe that that a different language, a different approach will, will probably heal us. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but things can, can, can change slowly, but they can change. So I have a question I'd like to ask before we run out of time uh, of the two of you, and I alluded to it in the previous long-winded question, but I'll make it short this time. What about those children that have been separated from their families? Any chance, a remote chance, that they'll be reunited? Well, you know, there's, there's more than 500 children, and and uh, I I know through talking to you know sources, I I think they're really determined to do so, but it is going to be so difficult, uh, not just because finding the the parents, but up, sometimes uh, the parents will not want to reunite because of fear that uh, they may end up, you know, both of them back in, in Guatemala, Honduras, or, or, or whatever country. Uh, I mean, I think it's a difficult, difficult task ahead, but I, I sense that there's a real uh, determination to, to get the work done. So, so what you're saying, what I hear you saying, is that there may be a chance that some people, regardless of how difficult it is to be separated from their children, will not step into the light to be reunited because of what may happen as a result of that. Because of the fear, exactly. Guadalupe. Yes, it's going to be very difficult and probably not all the children will find their parents, but there is a will. I, I, I am, I am convinced that the current administration is 
is is really uh, allocating resources to do this. As Alfredo explained, um, it's probably going to be difficult and probably will not see all the children and all the parents uh, unite again. But but I am hopeful that that this is going to you no, know, this is going to improve, and many will will find their parents. Uh, probably not the hundred percent, but this is a this is a very important message as well. That if this is if this is possible, that is there is a will, there is a way to reform the system, to change the system, to to become fair and just, and and create a world where if if, if you give something, if immigrants give so much to to America, that America will 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 respond the same way. So I think it's 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 possible. Probably not going to be. It's not going to be easy, and probably not everybody's going to find their their parents or their, their children. But this is this is this is this is hope. This gives us hope in many ways. Beautifully put. Thank you too very much. It was very uh, enlightening, very interesting, and and very passionate, which is, of course is what we like on this podcast. Thank, Thank you. you, Chris. Thank you, JJ. Thank you, JJ. Thank you, Alfredo. Thank you, Chris. It has been a pleasure to be with all yeah, of you. It's a great pleasure to have all four of us here together talking about this. Thank you for being here. You're listening to Colors. I'm Dimitri Sotis, and I'm white, and I'm a journalist on the radio in Washington, D.C. Uh, ever since the death of George Floyd, I've personally tried to educate myself a little more, including uh, reading uh, James Baldwin and, and watching uh, a documentary film about him. And what uh, what I find uh, moving uh touching and, and disturbing all at the same time is that uh, James Baldwin has not been with us for, for a number of decades now, but his writings and uh, and the, the videos and the speeches that I saw in that documentary resonate as much today as they did back then. Uh, and I think it's something that doing this Colors podcast you have seen over and over again, not to mention uh, living a life as a black man in America, is these cyclical things where uh, somebody who's been dead since the 80s, but who was fighting for racial injustice is discussing the same kinds of things that we're discussing here in early 2021. I, I know that's a, a negative take on it, but I just I, I don't see the wheel rolling forward the way it should. And I wish I had the intellectual capacity to uh, to figure out how to how to change that, because I certainly would try to do my part if I could. This is Colors a dialogue on race in America. Talking to those two is really inspirational, but at the same time, there's a hint of sadness in this whole picture for me, primarily because of the fact that those children and those families were yeah. broken up. And there's a strong possibility, as Guadalupe said, uh, and Alfredo as well, that they'll never be all reunited. And that is just an incredibly sad thing. I mean, well, that's they were, heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. There was a bit of a note of optimism in there at the end, but still, that's something that just kind of sticks with me. Yeah, it's almost impossible to believe that that could happen. That's just um, a bad stain. But but to change course, if I might. Yes. Uh, at the risk of going all Oprah on you, mm -hmm. uh, we we are not we don't have a colors uh, book club, but. I do want to recommend a book I just finished a couple of days ago for everybody who's interested in this topic. It's by Emmanuel Acho, and it's called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. 
He's the black man. Uh, he grew up in a, with a, a very affluent family in Dallas, Texas, played for the University of Texas, played in the National Football League. And now he does this podcast and is a speaker and he's he's really good. But he wrote this book in a way that's very um, user friendly in that he breaks everything down and sort of, OK, now this is going to be uncomfortable, but here are things that we have to say. And it's not, you know, it's, you and I have been doing this between the two of us for a long time, but he's addressing a broader audience than that. So there are just a couple of things that I've learned that I'm, I'm changed. I mean, what I'm opening my mind and the others change something. I am no longer going to use the word slave because slave is a noun, but the proper word is enslaved. People are born as humans. But they're not born as slaves. They're bo- they are enslaved. It's, it's not voluntary. It's not who they are. They have been enslaved by someone else. So enslaved people is what I will say from now on. Or I will say your ancestors were enslaved. I'm not going to say the other word anymore. And that comes right out of this book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. The other thing has to do with voting. And I had never thought about this. And Mr. Acho lived in a couple of places after he could vote. He lived in Dallas, where he grew up in a very uh, affluent neighborhood where he walked down the street. He went in to vote. He got in and out of there in a couple of minutes. And that's the way voting has always been for me. Then he moved to Austin and he moved into a side of town that wasn't like it was in Dallas. And he discovered when he went to vote, he couldn't believe it. Why are these people standing outside? And there was a line. It took him a couple of hours to vote. And the difference is because in the affluent community, there are lots of little places where people can vote, churches, schools, community centers, whatever. And then either it's being done on purpose or it's just coincidental how you can you make that judgment. But in areas where poor people live, many of whom are, are of color, but but not all, um, it's more inconvenient to vote. And I had never thought about that before. How long have you had to stand in line to vote? I, for me, it's been, I don't know, the most ever, probably 10 minutes. I've I've spent an hour in line, and um, that was actually in uh, I want to say 2016, mm-hmm. uh, and that I think, if I'm correct, was a primary. <laughs> you know. Well, there there anyway. So that that that's one of them, and so those are the two things. One, I'm going to use the word enslaved. The other is the convenience of voting places increases the size of the vote for obvious reasons. The other thing, and this is what I want to ask you about, because he points out a number of uh, words or phrases that we have used without thinking about it. You and I have talked about some of them. But he, he brought up the term plantation shutters. And he said that that brings back, you know, the old plantations of the South and stuff. I, sometimes, and you, you've said this before, JJ, sometimes a word is just a word. Does the term plantation shutters offend you? It depends on how it's used. And I think I've said this to you before. Um, It depends on where and how it's used. And if it's used in a connotation that uh, all of the supporting characters around it, the words, the intention of whatever it is that I'm listening to uh, and where it goes and, and why it's being directed at me, if it carries with it something that suggests to me, either cerebrally 
or something uh, in, from an intuition point of view that is negative, then it's going to be, I'm going to receive sure. it as negative. But but that's why I say sometimes it's just a word. Sometimes if I, because if I go into a store and I want to say, do you guys sell these plantation shutters? People are going to know what I mean. We all know what they look like. That it, it, the name itself, it doesn't carry with it any inherent harm, in my opinion. Um, I, it's just a name that we all, everybody knows what they look like. We could call them something else, I guess, if it's a big deal. But to me, it's like, okay, that was a stretch a little too far for me to fully understand. Well, I can understand why you feel that way. And you know what? I might agree with you on 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 some in some circumstances. Um, yeah, words are just words in some cases. You know, names are just names in some cases. Remember the guy from Florida whose uh, name was on the school and the school decided that they yes. can't? Dixie. You know, yes, that was the guy's name. And as I mentioned to you, then if we're talking about a Dixie cup, I'm OK with it because that's just the name of a cup. It's, it's a name brand, of, right? It's a brand. Um, and if you're talking about a something that is a style of something like a plantation, um, then look at the connotation of the, the plantation. And as an African-American man, I'm going to think twice about it. But I do understand why uh, you might say it's just a word. It's just something we say. Uh, and so but here's the thing for me, the overall the overall idea here is we can go down rabbit holes on words and get lost on words and, and right. spend the entire day arguing about words. But what about the reality of what's happening on the streets? One of the things and I kind of mentioned this in our last program, there are a lot of people involved in diversity, equity and inclusion conversations. And there's a lot of money for people to be made right now, uh, profiting off of that, doing whatever they do and saying whatever they say or one way or the other before or against. And I do think it's something that uh, needs to get a little bit of a, uh, a closer look in the, in, in the days, weeks, months and years to come. But we can't get lost on arguing about some things. Some things are worth it. Some things are not. Here's yeah, I agree. Here's what I want to throw at you today. One of the things that happened after the George Floyd death and many of the protests that took place last year were uh, people throwing police officers under the bus. I might have done that, too. I might have been one of those people that said, um, you know, police are unfairly targeting African-Americans. And if I did, then I need to say I'm sorry. What I need to say is. If I didn't say it, I kind of think I did. But if I didn't say it, I want to say it now and make it clear. It was not every police officer that did that. There were some police officers that did that. It wasn't even a majority of police officers that have done that, that have targeted African-Americans or any other person unfairly and gone after them. Because the reason I'm bringing this up right now is because a couple of days ago, maybe a week or so ago, I had a conversation with a police officer that was near my neighborhood who happened to be in the neighborhood because there have been some crime problems in that part of the neighborhood. So I was stopping to tell him something. He got out of his vehicle. He closed the door. He leaned on it and he looked at me and basically said the, the equivalent of how dare you. And it stunned me because I'm thinking, wow, why is he so hostile? He went on to explain 
you people in the media, that's what he said, and politicians went overboard with this whole concept of uh, this whole concept of police making life miserable for black and brown people. And he said that what's happened is as a result of you doing that, a lot of uh, governments have taken these knee jerk actions that have put in place laws that essentially create loopholes for people that are looking to exploit you and the cops. And to be brief about it, what he said was what's happening is you can arrest in this particular state a person for standing on the street and drinking a beer, but you can't arrest that same person for standing on the street and smoking a joint. And the problem with all of that is, and there are two things, politicians that have gone too far putting in place laws to protect black and brown people, but at the same time what they've done is handcuffed, no pun intended, the police whose mission it is to protect and serve those same black and brown people, and all people. I mean, the effort is well-intentioned, but it needs some more study. It needs some tweaking. Loopholes need to be closed because there are people out there intent upon taking advantage of them. Some of these people who are doing that taunt the police, and many of the, many of the folks that are engaging in this, in this particular neighborhood, shall we say, uh, are causing problems for the neighbors. So now the police are unwilling to do anything beyond what the book says because they don't want to get the book thrown at them. Yeah, well, that is there's the yin and the yang of of uh, everything and and that um the, you know, f the police and yep. uh, you know, defund the police and all that kind of stuff. There are there are, you know, consequences to using that kind of language. I don't I don't think he were particularly hard on people uh at least not on this podcast. In fact, I think I was the one who we were talking about the officer who shot somebody who was inside the car six times in the back. And I don't remember. Uh, I don't know if the police officer was white or black. I don't it doesn't really matter. I was just saying you don't shoot somebody who's inside a car. You're basically at arm's length and you shoot them six times. You don't really need to do that. And I was the one that got upset about that. Well, um, but but you're right. I mean, I you know, God bless these people that go out and put their lives on the line every day. It's it's really dangerous work. Most of the time, most police officers don't have to shoot anybody in their whole entire career. Yeah. But they need to be ready to because they never know. Yeah. And it's it's so unfortunate that some who choose to look for situations, police officers or create situations where they can shoot somebody and harm somebody. It's just unfortunate because what's happened is a lot of people have unfairly accused police officers uh, who have done nothing wrong. Just uh, guilt by association. And yeah. that can't be. And Jim Clyburn, who is the uh, Democrat, Democratic whip, and again, this is not a political show, uh, who is an African-American, he's the third-ranking Democrat in the House of Representatives, said it himself, this whole idea of defunding the police is ridiculous. You know, it cannot happen. It should not happen. And the idea of the conversation about defunding the police was just that. It was a conversation to talk about fixing some problems. And your friend and mine, too, um, Doug Gansler, the former state's attorney in Montgomery County in Maryland, said the idea here is to train police better. And that's really where that needs to, to go and continue to go. But I just need to make it clear. What's happened is... A lot of police officers are angry because they were targeted. Their families yeah. have been yes. been targeted. 
because of this rhetoric about all police officers are bad, and that is simply not true. And by the way, this uh, lecture that I got came from an African-American police officer. Did you make up with him at the end? Yeah, we did. Good. But only after he calmed down. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, if you uh, have any uh, feedback for us on our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Please write to us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. I am a Korean adoptee who was raised and currently live in Harleysville, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Philadelphia. I grew up in a white family in a very white community. I have two sisters, but I was the only one who was adopted. While I didn't have many issues with this growing up, Recently, I allowed myself to recognize that both of my sisters married racist men. This is sad and disorienting, and has led me to really question what my sisters thought of me and the true nature of our relationships. The painful prospect of racism within a family. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. As we go, special thanks to Dimitri Sotis, our colleague here at WTOP, for his reflections during African American History Month about how George Floyd's death and the late James Baldwin's counsel has helped him. Thanks to the legendary Cortland Cox for his counsel and connections. Thanks to the voice of colors, Hillary Howard. Thank you, Mike Jakaitis, Julia Ziegler, Joe Loxley, Sean Anderson, Brennan Hazelton, Peggy Byard, Charles Height, Gina Baysmore, and Ann Core, and for the music, Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and of Shane. And of course, most of all, a gigantic thank you to you for listening to us. And I'd just like to ask you to remember to keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.